So that's an opportunity for us to explore the living hope, uh, focusing on Advent. And, you know, with me, we're back to hope in adversity, okay? Because that's the name of our series, uh, First Peter. Um, so I want to invite you to turn in your scriptures, your smartphone, or whatever you're using today uh, to look at First Peter. We're going to be at chapter 3, verses 13 through uh, 18. So grateful, church, uh, for all the volunteers that sacrificed to help us uh, have a service each week. Really grateful for you. Um, thanks uh, for all of you who are tuning in online, and I understand why everybody doesn't feel safe to be here. I get it. Um, just, uh, I'm just so thankful for the church family. Martin Luther King Jr. was the face and the voice of the civil rights movement in the 1950s and the 1960s. Now, I grew up watching this on the nightly news, and I, had, I of course, didn't understand it all. It was just kind of strange to me. Um, and, and yet, there's a part of me that I just think everybody remembers that. And, of course, some of you weren't born yet, of course. Well, Martin Luther King fought against social injustice, segregation, voter suppression, and racial discrimination. He used civil disobedience and nonviolence as the chief strategy of the civil rights movement. He personally was put in jail 29 times for his commitment to this nonviolent strategy. One time he was put in jail for driving 30 miles an hour in a 25 miles an hour zone. Um, the nonviolent protesters of that day were routinely submitted to fire hoses, nightsticks, and jail time. King was also under the strict scrutiny of the federal government uh, by the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover. Local police authorities and state troopers throughout the South were looking for ways to stop the movement once for all. Now, the interesting thing is, not only that, some of King's biggest critics and most hurtful to him were the professional clergy of Birmingham, Alabama, where he had served as a Baptist pastor. Um, it was to these clergymen that King wrote a letter from the Birmingham jail. He did not attack his opponents or call them names. He did not express anger, but careful reasoning. He acknowledged his opponents' positions and sought one by one to address each of their concerns. King used reason, justice, facts, and his convictions along with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He led the cause for justice through a time of racial controversy, tension, and by using Christian ethics. He was shot and killed April 4th, 1968. He's the only American besides George Washington have a national holiday after his birthday. It was January 15th, and we celebrated on the third uh, Monday of January. And I know some of you think that Abraham Lincoln... We celebrate his birthday on President's Day. It's actually George Washington's birthday that we celebrate, and it is um, our culture that has added this President's Day to promote uh, commerce. 
Um, so, Martin Luther King Jr. was one of those people that I think Peter would have commended in how he handled controversy, how he handled suffering and difficulty, and how he represented a Christ-like response. We're going to look at First um, Peter chapter 3, and we're going to see uh, what I mean by Peter's commendation for Martin Luther King. First Peter chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. And Peter writes, but let me go back and read verse 12, okay? Because this is what we looked at last week. This is how we ended last week. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, even when they're suffering. The ears are attentive to their prayer, even when life is hard. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, even when it doesn't seem like it. So now we go to verse 13. This is our passage. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Doesn't feel like it. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. And so those are Peter's words in verses 13 and 14. Now remember that in the first century, Peter is writing to people who were facing persecution. Hard times are coming, and it's going to get really hard in their lifetime. Peter is equipping the church for suffering. First Peter could be called a survival guide for those who suffer. So let's see how he sought to prepare the church. Verse 13, remember that God is for us and not against us. Okay, pretty straightforward. Peter wants to remind his readers, including us, to see that there is an eternal perspective to life and not everything is right in front of your eyes. Verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Well, there are people who can harm you in this life. There's no doubt about that. Peter would say you're more... You're less likely to be harmed if you are doing good. You're less likely to be arrested for doing good, but it's not impossible for you to be arrested for for doing good. Um, It's still possible in this life experience for somebody to harm you no matter who you are. So how can that be encouraging? For Peter, in eternity, it won't seem like it even mattered. How can that be? Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul reminds us of this. He says, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We can, we can face a lot of difficulty. We can face... Physical harm from people, that's a possibility. But who can overcome God? Because God is for us. Um, He's not against us. In the big scheme of things, God is on our side. God loves us and He wants the very best for our lives. We think, if God loves us, 
Why does he let us suffer? That's our perspective. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want pain. That's a pretty human response. And Peter wants us to see a bigger picture. He wants to see uh, an eternal perspective. Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. Peter writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. Shall trouble? Nope. Or hardship? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? You know, we can experience trouble and hardship. We may experience persecution. We may experience hunger and drought and famine. We may experience violence. None of those things are, will separate us from God's love and God's care. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. And Peter writes, or excuse me, Paul writes, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who, who loved us. Because of Jesus, because of what he's done for us, we will overcome evil. Jesus overcame all evil. And Paul writes, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, and we're going to face death, most likely, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future nor any powers, next slide, neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us from God's love. It's about our relationship with God. It's about our eternal relationship with God and all that He's promised in the future because sins have been forgiven and heaven is, the, is a home for us and we'll receive an eternal inheritance. Nothing will separate us from that. So here's the question for you. Are you convinced that God knows what He's doing? Is God's answer for us good enough for you? Can you trust Him? Because this is really an issue of faith. Or, you, you know, you could say, Jerry, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, look at verse 14. Remember, God overcomes our fear. Fear is a God-given human response to danger. God-given emotional response to danger. In that sense, it's a good thing. The problem is, is becoming controlled by fear. Verse 14, Peter writes, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Well, that's easy for you to say, Peter. Peter instructs us not to be afraid. Martin Luther King and many other Christ followers suffered dearly during the civil rights movement for doing what is right, exactly what Peter was talking about here. On the night before his death, Martin Luther King spoke at Mason Temple Church. 
he would be dead in 24 hours. And, and he said in his speech, I've seen the promised land. I think he was talking about the fulfillment of his dream, not just heaven, but the fulfillment of equality in America. And he said, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight, as, as we, we as people, we will get to the promised land. And then he said, and I'm happy tonight, and I'm not worried about anything, and I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. Kind of a powerful statement in a message the night before his death. Martin Luther King had inner resources to deal with difficult days. He had resources to overcome fear when danger was close by almost every day. The Apostle Paul writes, Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So anxiety, that's normal. But anxiety is a tip-off. It's, oh, what should I do? What should I do? Oh, I need to turn and take this to God. I need to put it into His hands. I need to bring my request. I need to be specific. My prayer life needs to be more than just God bless all these people. I need to state my, my, the issue that I face in a specific way. And I need, to, I need to keep working on this thankful heart in these unprecedented times. Present your request to God. Paul writes, and then here's the promise, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. It's not logical, it's not rational, it's not reasonable. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It may not take away physical suffering, but there can be a peace that comes from God that will guard our hearts, that the center of our being and our minds that, that take us all over the world to worry and one of the resources that God gives is peace. And it's not just a theological idea of peace. Paul is talking about here a real experience, one that you can feel, the peace of God. The Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, here's another resource. He says, there is no fear in love. And, and John has just uh, been writing about God's love for us and how we can walk in His love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. God's love for us, if we receive it, drives out fear. If we rest in God's hands, if we trust Him, because fear has to do with punishment. God is not going to punish His children. The one who fears, He can discipline His children. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
God's love can overpower fear. And it's a resource, it's a spiritual resource that God has provided for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter writes, cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And, he, and he, he's saying, God wants to take our worries, our fears, our stress, our conflict, our pain, and He wants us to cast it on Him. Or another way to talk about it is bear one another's burdens. In this case, God is going to bear our burdens on Him. And He's going to walk with us through any time of trouble. So remember that God has already given us resources to cope with fear. Verses 15 and 16, we see, uh, secondly, may we embrace Jesus as Lord. May we embrace Jesus as Lord. Look at verse 15. And Peter writes, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So may we embrace Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord. You know that, right? He, he knows that He is Lord. Do you know Him as Lord? As your Lord? You've probably trusted Him as your Savior. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sins and you've embraced that message of the gospel by faith. But do you trust Him with your life? Do you give Him permission to lead you? And so, verse 15, make an intentional choice. Make an intentional choice. It's your decision. He writes in verse 15, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Um, the old NIV said, but in your hearts, set, set apart Christ as Lord. It's about putting Jesus first in your life. Um, it's in your heart. It's where you make decisions. It's, that, it's the inner core where your real values are lived out, where your motives come from. Um, it's the center of your, your, your heart. And in our hearts, Peter's saying, yield your life to Jesus. He is loving. He is all-wise. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. What's your choice? You can trust your wisdom, your judgment, your decision-making, your weaknesses, and your sin nature to do your life. So Peter would say, make an intentional decision to place Jesus, number one, on the throne of your life. Let Him be in charge. Now, think about this. We have, we have the privilege in this life to know Jesus. He wants to be the leader of our lives. He wants you and me to entrust our daily lives and decisions into His hands. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle uh, Paul uh, tells the church at Philippi to 
have the mind of Christ, to, to, to seek, to, to, to be humble like Jesus, and to be a servant, and to live like Jesus, to have that mindset. And then he goes on in chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11, and Peter writes, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul writes, therefore God exalted him. This is after his death and burial and resurrection. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and give him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Next slide. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is a day coming in future history where the entire universe, all of creation, is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 19, when he comes a second time, he has a name, Lord of Lord and King of Kings. There's a day coming we're all going to be there. None of us will be exempt from that day. When you think about it, there are going to be people who are shocked, deeply surprised. And for Christ followers, it should be a time of, this is just awesome. And I just sense I'm going to melt. I'm not going to be able to even be on my knees. And to be in the presence of, of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The big question is, is this something, if this is who Jesus is, why wouldn't we want to surrender to Him, to yield to Him, to ask Him to help us day by day, ask Him for wisdom, ask Him to guide our decision-making. Ask Him for the strength to, to, to handle temptation. Um, passage that's very meaningful to my wife when she, when she thinks about lordship is Romans 12, 1. And, and, and the Apostle Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. It's a presentation. It's the kind of thing that you, know, you can do every day where oh, I, just need to, I just need to come again and, and, and go before God and just remind Him of who I am and remind Him that I know who He is and I want Him to be the leader of my life. Verses 15 and 16. Peter writes, Be ready to speak for Christ. As the church in the first century was facing persecution, and some of it's going to be really difficult, Peter seeks to prepare them to be ready. He says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. And then he says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have. If you don't have any hope, then you don't have any reason. And Peter's saying, put Christ, put Christ first, place Him at the highest place in your life, and then be prepared to give an answer 
You know what? People are going to ask. They're going to ask. If you're a follower of Christ and you're actually following, they're going to see, hey, you're not like everybody else. You don't seem to go for all the same things. You seem to have different values. What is it? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And the question would be, why? How would you answer that? Why do you trust Jesus Christ? What are your reasons? Do you trust the Bible? Is this book important? Why? How do you answer that? Um, People are going to ask, and they do ask, and, and, and they often ask the same kinds of questions. Like, how do you know the Bible is true? That's a common question. Why did the innocent suffer? That's a classic question of the universe. And people are going to ask that. Well, what about evolution? It seems like science supports this. And you Christians say this. How can that be? Or are there many ways to God? I always thought there were probably many ways to God. So why do you say that Jesus is the only way? Or how did we get the Bible anyway? Didn't some men just sit down and make this up? It seems like the Bible and science conflict. How does that work? How can you be a Christian with all this scientific information? And how does, how does science fit in? In theology, we call this whole area, all of these questions, we call it apologetics. Uh, from, uh, from the Greek word uh, that Peter uses about giving a defense. It's a, giving a formal defense. And it's sort of like a, you know, just know that there are common, common questions that people ask. And we can know some of the answers, but it probably will take a little extra effort and a little extra study. There are a lot of good books and, and uh, videos available that deal with these questions. You know, since I'm an old guy, I go back to some of the classics like Evidence of the Band's Verdict by Josh McDowell. There's another book that I've really liked uh, by Larry Boa called I'm Glad You've Asked. But there's a lot of good information out there. And the interesting thing is the kind of questions that you're likely to be asked are the kind of questions that you'll be able to answer if you do a little research. You, You probably won't get the most difficult question that somebody ever thought of. Because it's just going to be one of your friends. Now, you may not have the answer immediately. And sometimes people ask me questions and I just said, you know, I don't, I'm not sure about that. Let me do some research. And I, I want to get back to you on that. We have the responsibility to be ready to give an answer. Um, and then Peter says, but do this with gentleness and respect. Answer people's questions with gentleness and with respect. It's so important to treat people with dignity. And sometimes Christians get flustered. Uh, They get defensive. Um, They feel like they're being attacked. And so they respond as if they're being attacked. And they try to win or they try to uh, just treat them like the enemy. And Peter says, treat them with gentleness and respect. It's not about winning the argument. It doesn't help if you you prove that you're right and 
They are not interested in the gospel because of your attitude. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak, verse 16, maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Keeping a clear conscience. Everything is okay between God and me. And as far as it depends on me, I want to live at peace with all people. May we represent Jesus well, showing love and respect for people who don't know Jesus. Never be surprised when someone who doesn't know Jesus acts like a non-Christian. Don't ever be surprised. The sad thing is, is when somebody says they're a Christ follower and they act like a non-Christian, and that's really confusing to our culture. Verses 17 and 18, number three, May our suffering be only for doing good. Let's read verse 17 and 18. Peter writes, For it is better, if it's uh, God's will, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. May our suffering be only for doing good. Verse 17, understanding that, understand that suffering in this life is normal. Probably should spend the whole time on this subject. Suffering is normal. It seems like American Christians read a passage like this and they say, yeah, it must have been really hard in the first century to see those people suffer. Suffering has been a part of human experience, human existence from the beginning. Our culture, the American culture, focuses on the pursuit of happiness. And how are we going to be the most comfortable? You know, we believe that we deserve to be happy. We deserve to have comfort. Sometimes I see Christians suffer pain and suffer hardship and they, end, they conclude that God doesn't love them. And, that, you know, that's just not in the Scripture at all. And part of it is we just aren't equipped for this. It just won't, we won't, we won't allow it to enter our thinking that suffering can happen to us and God is in control, and God is working out a plan, and God is working for good, and how can it be good? Because suffering can't be good in any way. Peter writes in 17, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That makes sense. We are going to suffer from time to time. All of our families need to be equipped and prepared to face pain in life. You know, that includes, we have health issues that can be physically painful or emotionally painful. Um, it is extremely painful when relationships are disrupted and families are torn apart. It's, it's extremely painful to go through the loss of a loved one. It's painful. 
And there often is suffering that goes with it. Um, Peter tells us that sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer. Are you okay with that? Sometimes it is God's will for us to suffer, even for doing good. We don't like that. Peter gave his life to following Christ. Peter proclaimed the good news about Christ, and he was a mentor and a discipler and a church planter. And if you know history, because of his commitment to Christ, he was executed by the Roman government. He was actually nailed to a cross. And according to tradition, um, Peter did not believe he deserved to die the way Jesus did, and he requested to be crucified upside down. Peter heard Jesus teach, Matthew 10, verse 28. And Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. That just doesn't seem fair, does it? Um, don't be afraid of those who can kill you. Some people will kill others. Thousands died in the first century during the Roman persecution, Nero's persecution against Christians. And Jesus said, don't fear them. They can't kill your soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Who can do that? Only Jesus. Jesus, the judge at the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20. He's saying, don't fear men. Fear only the one, um, fear only God, meaning in reverential awe, set apart Christ as Lord, and then be ready to give an answer. And that's what God instructed these first century believers. Jesus also taught in Luke chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, he said, Blessed are you when people hate you. Well, that doesn't feel good. When they exclude you, I don't like that, and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Next slide. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. That's the eternal perspective. That's how their ancestors treated the prophets. The prophets were persecuted some of them were stoned to death, executed by God's own people. Just, you know, it's counterintuitive. It's like upside down kingdom principles. You're blessed. You're in the state of God's blessing. You're in the place where you can receive God's reward eternally when people hate you because of your commitment to Christ. Now, People may hate you for dumb choices that you make or how you treat them. That's not what he's talking about. 
when they exclude you. Sometimes you may be excluded because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. Sometimes you may be insulted. Sometimes um, you may be rejected as you, as if you are the one that is evil. It's interesting how this is developed. You know, I've been a Christian, uh, I have to do the math there, 40-some years watching culture change, and we have come to a place where God-honoring, I think some of the evangelicals in our day and age have really done some stupid things, and there's lots of confusion about what evangelical means. But there are people who have a high view of, for example, marriage. What does God say about marriage? Is it to be a relationship of one man and one woman? And the idea is a dedication and a commitment for life. Or is it open to every idea that we see in our culture today? And sometimes Christ followers come across as the ones who, you're the one that's evil if you think, if you're that simple to think that there's only one man and one woman, and that's it. And we come off as the bad people. Jesus says, rejoice in that day, because great is your reward in heaven. But we want to respond to people with gentleness and respect, with dignity. All people deserve to be treated with dignity. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, Paul instructed the church at Philippi, he says, for it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. If, if God grants suffering for you, are you okay with that? Uh, and I just want us to be reminded that suffering is normal. We are tempted to bury our heads in the sand, what the Bible has to say about suffering. Um, we need to equip our families. We need to equip our children. Sometimes we just focus on protecting our children from the idea of suffering. Sometimes we only want our kids to think, this is why some young adults walk away from the faith. They grow up in a bubble where they have just one idea that God's always going to take care of them. God's always, there's always going to be protection. There's always going to be safety if they're good. And then they find out in the real world, that doesn't always work. Sometimes evil seems to prevail, and sometimes people really do suffer. And we need to uh, help our kids and uh, expose our kids to the truth and, and do this with wisdom. I'm not saying being crazy. I'm saying be age-appropriate and help them process the difficulties that they're going to face in life. Verse 18, we come to the last uh, verse. And this uh, is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it contains the gospel. And it's a transition from this passage this week and it's a transition to the passage next week. And so we're going to look at it again next week. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. This is the what? Jesus suffered. He suffered real pain. He bled real blood. Because he loved us. And he was crucified on a cross. Nails went through his hand and through his feet. And if you want to get technical, maybe it was his wrists. Maybe it was above his ankles. I think they did crucifixions in all those different ways. I take it just as face and feet. The who 
The righteous for the unrighteous. He is the righteous one and we are the unrighteous because all of us have sinned. And in him there was no there was no sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. And the why? To bring you to God. Jesus' death was a payment for our sins. We call it redemption. It changes our relationship to God. Now we can have a close, intimate, eternal relationship with the true and living God. Because now we are a part of God's family. It's changed everything to bring us into this relationship with God. And the how, He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Uh, His death was a sacrificial offering uh, to God for our sin. And then Jesus was in the tomb for three days, and it was proof of His death. And then He was made alive by the Spirit, and we call that the resurrection. And it was giving proof of His success. His success over victory over sin, and His victory over death, and His victory over Satan. So what good came from it? Billions of people have been saved from the penalty of their sin. God was working good through a terrible time of suffering that one human experienced. God used it for good. God used it for our good. What good can come from our suffering? Well, In chapter 2, Peter instructed us already that we are to follow in his steps. We are to give our lives for others out of love, just like Jesus did. Sometimes that may mean suffering. Romans 8, 28, another well-known passage from the Apostle Paul, and he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things... God can work good. He can work good through suffering and pain and hardship and difficulty. He can work good through our own physical pain. The family that was instrumental in leading me to uh, Christ when I was 25 years old had a daughter named Mary. She was 17 years old. She was driving to a Christian camp right after she got out of high school. And as she was driving, a drunk driver crossed the center line and they crashed head on and she was killed instantly. I actually never got to meet Mary. Mary was one of my wife Sue's uh, closest friends in those days. The parents suffered deeply in the midst of this tragedy. And I was a skeptic, and I was on the outside, and because Sue knew the family, I went to meet them. I went to the funeral. I spent some time with the parents. And I saw something different in their lives. I saw their pain. It was real. I understand why. I saw Mary in the casket. And yet they had a hope that was beyond the grave. 
The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. It develops us. It makes us stronger. It creates endurance and perseverance, character. And we have a chance to become more like Christ and our character develops and our character hope. Mary's parents had hope. I was attracted to it. I wanted to know about it. I wanted to have it. And they clearly explained the gospel to me in a way that I could understand. And one of the most impressive things to me through this whole thing was, I think I was an atheist. I was a critic of Christianity. And they did this with gentleness and respect. And they treated me with dignity. And I began to understand what Christian love is really like. To close, I want to read a quote from John Piper. And, and Piper says, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Because sometimes, you know, we Christians get that idea. I'm going to become a Christian and life is good. And God will take all my problems away. And then he says, life is winding, a winding and a troubled road. It's switchback after switchback. And the point, biblical stories like Joseph. You know, Joseph suffered. That's why the story is there. So we can, we can see it. We can feel it. And Job, Job suffered greatly. I don't know how he, he managed. I, I can't imagine and Esther, and Esther was placed in a time where all this uh, pressure was on her. And uh, not so much physically, but the turmoil she faced inside to make a moral stand and to be wise. And Ruth, Ruth went through poverty and she endured struggles. Eventually, she would become an ancestor to Jesus. And all these things are to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads that God is for us in all these strange turns. Last slide. God is not just showing up after the trouble and cleaning, cleaning, cleaning it up. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. That last that last sentence, he is plotting the course and he is managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Let's stand and pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word. I thank you for Peter's skill in communicating to us about suffering. May we just continue to learn, Lord. May we continue to be equipped. May we continue to learn how to respond to difficulty and pain and hardship. May we keep you in our first place. May we go from here and just be reminded to be intentional about you having the highest position in our lives as our Lord. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.